Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Ervodio, and today I'm feeling like the love child of Golden Corral and Little Caesars because I'm coming at you with an endless buffet of hot and ready news. Over in New York, our friends at the James Beard Awards are at it again. They're being accused of bending to wokeness for eliminating an Alabama chef from award contention due to alleged yelling at staff and guests. Father Saul joins me to dissect the criticism and revisit our favorite question, why should we even care about these awards in the first place? Meanwhile in Hollywood, the city is investigating hotspots like Mother Wolf and Katine for allegedly stiffing workers out of the 5% service fees you see on your checks. What does this mean for frenemy of the pod Evan Funky? Time will tell, but maybe he can use some of that time to cook his pasta just a smidge longer. Just a smidge? Is that asking for too much? Finally, Saul and I discuss what we're most looking forward to eating at EatsCon this weekend, what it feels like to be invited to our first ever restaurant opening, and what titillates us most about the newly released trailer of The Bear Season 2. And oh yeah, there's a fantasy Top Chef recap at the end, but because I'm losing, I sincerely hope you don't even make it that far in the podcast. Without further ado, let's chow down. Back on the pod with us today is a man who's racking up air miles faster than the 76ers are racking up second round exits. It's Father Saul. A plus intro. A plus intro. Yes. I, I wonder which which is at a higher rate at this point. My multiple trips a month to LA to eat food with you or the number of times my favorite basketball team has broken my heart in May. It's just yes. close. I it's close. So this is not yet a sports podcast. Uh, we're not quite there yet. It, it inevitably will become a sports podcast one day. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, I did want to give the floor to uh, to Father Saul uh, to express his misery about the 76ers' recent exit. And I told him he could do so under the conditions that he made a food analogy. <laughs> I mean, look, my headline here is never love anything. I think that's the healthiest, <laughs> the healthiest takeaway that I have. It's, you know, you know what it is? Oh, I have the perfect food analogy. Uh-huh. The 76ers every year for me is like when we went to Girl on the Goat for the first time. You get there, you're excited. You're like, hey, this is fresh and new. This is a, a really exciting menu. New players coming in. I think we got a shot. Next thing you know, you're eating mushroom dessert. <laughs> you're eating mushroom brownies for dessert. And you're like, what the fuck happened here? Why I was like this? There's this. I was like, where is this going? But that actually makes sense. I was going to compare it to, if you didn't have one, I had an analogy ready for you. I was going to compare it to um, Nicholas Holt's character in the menu, basically. Uh-huh. Uh, just being given all of the ingredients that it needs from a very capable chef, in this ca- or in this case, Daryl Morey, um, and then just getting there and being like, you're going to toss us in the pan, see what happens. And if I... I- <laughs> I would I would take that same scenario. I'm gonna I would tweak it a little bit because it's like Nicholas Holt in the menu going to a place, a chef that he reveres and worships and roots for constantly, and the chef's like, actually I'm gonna fucking kill you. And it's like, well <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, on that uh, let's let's talk about something a little happier, shall we? Something that is gonna hopefully lift your spirits this weekend. And that is the fact that we are going to Eats con. How excited are you on a scale from one to ten? I, I'm a full ten, man. I am so excited for Eats con. Not just because, as Brandon so eloquently told us the last time I was on the pod, that the food and and the environment and the way they structured the food event looks so strong and so fun. But like, legitimately, they have some cool event based people. The fucking top chef coming through, Tom Colicchio, Galen Brook. Super excited for yeah. that. Ali Wong, want to see what's up? I finished. Her show Beef recently thought it was fucking fire. That was really interesting. Though we will see, she might get some interesting questions from the crowd. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm I'm just I'm just really excited for the for the event as a whole. It's going to be a great two days. What would you say you're most excited for from a food perspective? From a food for so we were I think we were talking about how well for me looking through the the list of, of uh, vendors who are going to be there. I'm, I know quite a few of them. Uh, just we'd, we'd eaten crudo we noodle recently. I've had Bridgetown roti before. I think Kobe's is one that I haven't had and I've seen on a lot of lists that I'm interested in trying. Uh, Sorted's I haven't tried, but I know it's down in Silver Lake. They got a thing going on. And of course, Moose Craft will be there. We've had Moose Craft before and I'll try to get my fix uh, before we go so we don't have to retreat some uh, 
a familiar ground. But the one, the one that I think I might be most excited for that I haven't had a chance to try yet, Simon. Simon Tacos. Oh. I've not been able to stop by the food truck, and I really want one of those soft shell crab tacos, man. Simon is excellent, and I think your excitement is well placed. I'm going to surprise you. I think one of the things that I'm most excited about is the collab between Found Oyster and Shake Shack. I know what you're, huh? And I, and I know what you're thinking. It's like Shake Shack, right? You can get that anywhere. But Found Oyster is so damn good and so damn creative that I just can't wait to see what they come up with. I've recently heard murmurings of the fact that they have a soft shell crab sandwich that's like a special at their restaurant, and I'm thinking they might do something with that with Shake Shack. And I, I'm just ready and prepared for my mind to be blown by whatever they do. Is this an extension of your Smash Burgers are like making out take from last time? Because you were like, Smash Burgers are just like making out. It's first base. It's boring. It's all kind of the same. And you see this Found Oyster collab as maybe Smash Burgers second base for you. You're finally getting a little extra, a little, a little new, new taste of what's out there. Yeah, subconsciously, I think I may be going under the neck with the Smash Burger uh, with this one. So I I hadn't thought about it like that, but it actually makes a ton of sense why I've been so titillated by the by the prospect. Probably, I'll try not to think too hard about the confused boner you're probably going to be having across from my, across the table from me while we eat Shake Shack and Found Oyster. You're like, why do I love this so much? Such exciting new experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. Um, if you haven't gotten your tickets yet to EatsCon and you want to be and you see what kind of reaction I have to this burger, uh, you should go, dear listener, to the Infatuations website and go get yourself a ticket because I don't think it's sold out yet. I might be wrong, but uh, if not, like just stand outside there and scalp tickets because um, honestly, I think this is one of those situations where you're going to do whatever you can uh, to get in the, inside the building or the hangar, the Barker hangar in Santa Monica. Well, speaking of making it in the food world, dude, we are on our way. We got invited to our first opening party. I'm really yeah. excited, man. And what's what, what's so exciting, too, is I think I literally just sent you an article about the restaurant that's opening being like, hey, this is pretty cool. Next thing you know, as if as if heard by God, we're invited to the opening of Bar Bar Los Angeles. Bar Bar Los Angeles, it's the cousin of a, or, or I'm sorry, the second iteration of a restaurant that's already opened in New York. It's marketing itself as elevated Indian cuisine, and it's downtown. It looks like an absolutely beautiful space, and from everything I've seen, the pictures look uh, of the food look pretty lit. Um, I was going to say, my excitement of being in, invited to this opening party was a little tempered when I saw them advertising it on Instagram stories for anybody to RSVP at the event, right? That's really funny. I didn't know. I didn't know that happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I was. I didn't know if uh, you had seen that, but if not, I wanted to be the one to break it to you. Is this might be a little less exclusive than we were hoping. However, the fact that we were invited, maybe we get a little bit of special treatment. You know, it's all you can hope for. That's all we can hope for. Although, what I was going to raise is, look, we got that. I, I raised Barbar like, hey, new new Indian restaurant in L.A. We get the invite. And I was like, bro, are we going corrupt? We got to We got to be careful, man. Here, we can't be bought. So, we're, so we got to get. So first of all, Barbar, just know I'm, I'm bringing real. I, I am a difficult person to impress with an Indian restaurant in any any case. Yeah. So I'm excited to test out the new menu. But this isn't uh this isn't uh you get some special treatment from our. But while I've said that, feel free to send it our way. Why not? Yeah, no, look, if you're happy for us to come correct, to like come honest and like, uh -huh. you know, give our real take on something, by all means, invite us to your event because we are not going to, we're not going to sugarcoat it. Okay. And to Father Saul's point, we've had some quote unquote elevated Indian food in the past. We've been to Batmash, the gastropub over in uh, on Fairfax. We've been to the acclaimed Pija Palace in Silver Lake, and uh, it's it's been a mixed bag, wouldn't you say? No, I would. I would. I think. I mean, just in general, uh, Indian food and Pakistani food is, I think, sometimes difficult to execute consistently at a high level in a restaurant setting. And and one in England, I think there are some places that really crush it. In the U.S., I've had some that like kind of closer closer meet the mark but it's pretty difficult to actually pull off especially when chefs go you know quote unquote elevated and modern and therefore try to you know take take new flavors on in a 
in a different way. I actually went to a um I went to an elevated Indian restaurant in DC and a pretty well acclaimed one. And they'd have like, you know, they'd do truffles on their seat kebab. And I was like, this tastes truffle, man. This isn't like you 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 threw truffle on kebab and tried to make it elevated, but no, it's it's failing at what it really should be. So it's a tough balance, I think. Maybe one of the more difficult balances for a progressive modern cuisine. And so look, it'll be it'll be tough to impress. Let's see what Barbar has. Yeah, I think it's a tough one to I also, first of all, there was a whole movement in food journalism where they kind of looked down on calling food elevated, you know, like talking about like an elevated version of Indian food or Mexican food and whatnot, because the implication is that like the regular version is below something else. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So I got to say, my ears always perk up when I hear a restaurant describe itself that way. That said, I have great admiration for chefs who try to like take their cuisine and showcase it in the best way possible um, in a way that like means something to them. And I'm thinking of like, uh, who's the guy in Top Chef that has his restaurant in Portland? Uh, the one that's... Oh, Gregory? Gregory, exactly. And, yeah. You know, I, I think it's, I forget exactly where his where, where where his food is from but he takes such pride in it and that is like what he does that is his thing and he is yeah. the person to do right so i you know i'm curious to see how they actually pull off the execution but look hey i have my fit ready i know exactly what i'm wearing open and party baby it's hollywood <laughs> it's not downtown but it feels hollywood um i cannot be stoked i feel like this is the beginning of something very uh uh um like rock and roll for us, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Rock and roll lifestyle is exactly what I thought when you said, do you want to come on a podcast? I, this is the inevitable inevitable endpoint of our of our cool high life now. But no, I, I, I'm I'm interested. And again, like, uh, I, I'm excited to see what they got. I, I feel what I will say is I feel like often, like, quote unquote, for, like modern or elevated Indian cuisine, the, the trap they fall into, because I think Indian food is really easy to make look beautiful. And a picnic. Mm-hmm. But what happens, even at Badmash, which has some really great dishes too, is like they kind of fail at the food, but it looks cool. Very Instagrammable. We've talked about Instagrammable dishes before. And so yeah. including Pija Palace being one of the one of the folks who I think maybe like don't always hit that balance right. So we'll we'll have our palettes out, watching out for uh for real quality here. Palettes out. Palettes out on Thursday night at the party. Apparently, you can still RSVP for it. So, uh, if you want to go to uh, Bar Bar Los Angeles's Instagram and check it out, actually, this podcast will have posted after it. So, unless you have a time machine, you cannot do it. Anyway, speaking of rock and roll lifestyle, there's one fictional rock and roll chef who's back at it again, and that is Carmen Berzato from The Bear uh, coming back for season two. They finally released the trailer of the show that's dropping in June. Have you seen it? Seen the trailer. I have actually not finished the first season, but I will say the trailer for the second one wanted me, made me want to get caught up real quick. So I think it looks dope. I'm excited. Yeah. So to, to catch you up on what's gone on in season one, I, I won't do too many spoilers, but basically towards the end of the season, they realize that they need a pivot at their restaurant. Mm-hmm. I won't tell you why, and I won't tell you exactly how it goes down. You should watch that for yourself. But the, in the in the trailer for the second season, they really get into this like pivot that the restaurant is taking, and I think it's yeah. an absolutely fascinating starting point for a season two because it basically is just like a whole new show uh, compared to the to the first season. Um, the thing that exactly. I noticed, that, yeah, yeah, the thing that I noticed about the trailer is it seems. Like it's carrying that frantic energy that the first season had, you know, just it really captures that sort of like uncut gems, like atmosphere of working in a restaurant, uh, which I do not have from firsthand experience, uh, but what I imagine it to be like. And that was that was cool, but I also found it a little bit off putting in the first season. I felt like at times it was just a gimmick like. The there's one of the like most famous episodes from the first season is an episode where it's just one camera shot and the entire time they're going through a day and a really chaotic day in the restaurant 
with that one camera shot. And I think it's literally just designed to spike your cortisol levels. And it's really well done from like an artistic perspective. It doesn't accomplish very much from a story perspective. And it ends up feeling to me a little, a little cheap because of that. And I just, I'm, that's the one dangerous territory that I want to see the bear avoid in season two is leaning too heavily into these artistic gimmicks and sacrificing the story. It's kind of like when a fine dining chef makes too many foams or something and sacrifices the actual flavor of the dish. Interesting. Interesting take. I, I, I can, I can understand the, the desire for them not to lean too heavily on it for sure, because where I would slightly disagree with you is certainly tone and feel and, and the visual sort of sensation of watching the show feeds into story, right? Part of the, part of the story or part of the, part of fully immersing yourself in the story of the bears, feeling the level of anxiety that, that Carmine feels, uh, or Carmi feels rather, right? And, and like, and also getting into like this, what, feeling what the speed and intensity of a restaurant really is during a rush hour, right? Um, you're right that it could also try to balance, like that That effect though is probably most um, most well used if it's in balance a little bit with slower moments, right? And like calmer, calmer shots, which they sprinkle in a little bit, but not not too much in the first season. So I get it from that perspective, but overall, but I, I think I in general disagree that it's something that I got tired of in, in season one thus far of course having not completed the whole thing i think it's a really effective way to like get swept up in like the not just the process of cooking in a restaurant but like in the pressure involved and like the the stakes that the folks feel and in, in the place and what i'm so excited about too is one of the things the bear has been lauded for from the uh, food community is its level of accuracy right and portraying the experience of working in a restaurant and, and being in the industry and with this pivot to them essentially rebuilding, right, opening a new restaurant concept, I'm really excited to see what components, after it components, there did pull in. When Dave Chang opened Major Domo in LA, he did a podcast series with Bill Simmons talking about right. the process of opening, and it was so fascinating. And you could hear that's all the episode, like the anxiety in Dave Chang's voice and like what he was experiencing, the stress and like the nerves, um, and and uh, and talking about all the little nitty gritty things that go into effectively opening a restaurant, and I really hope that this season sticks with that level of accuracy in reflecting what it's going to be like to open a restaurant. It sounds like on a pretty pretty insanely tight time schedule as well, based on what the trailer has shared. Yeah. Okay. Look, that's that is interesting. I do think that that is one of those things that the show accomplishes well. Is and I've heard that you know from folks in the industry, which you know have who have a better grasp on that than you or I. So if they say so, I'm inclined to believe them that the show portrays things accurately. The flip side of that, though, is that I've also heard folks in the industry lament the fact that the Carmi character kind of comes across as like the hero hot guy that like everybody wants because they're like, this is basically further glorification of the kind of asshole, like tortured genius which we've done for so long in the industry. And I, I literally saw someone post a meme that was like, you know, uh, talking about everybody swooning over him uh, with the caption, just like, love yourselves. <laughs> like, basically just like, <laughs> don't repeat errors of glorifying, you know, these kinds of guys. I think that's a that's an interesting take. I, I, I feel like if they're going to lean into making Carmi that guy, he should start to suffer some of the consequences. And he does a little bit in season one, but I would love to see a Carmi gets canceled storyline, bro. <laughs> I, I probably probably not out of the question. What I what I assume will happen with the show is is like this character growth hero's journey of like he has this like the the the, the elements of a toxic chef in him. Even though he when the series opens, right, tries to sh like be different, tries to like tries to be against the experience that he had in New York a little bit, right? Try to be, tries to be kinder, but can't help it, right? The, the drips of like uh, abuse kind of come through and of his own experience. I, what I expect to happen is that they like show him working through, but it would be interesting if it's like a breaking bad and he can't let it go. And he has to be someone that the, the rest of the characters are, are, are the pastry chef who's like so lovable. AO's character who's so cool have to overcome in their own journey, right? We'll see. And AO is also going to be at EatsCon, so uh, yet another reason. Oh, yeah. To go. 
Uh, Everyone there, man. Everyone's going to be there. I heard Clooney's coming through. Brad Pitt, maybe. Yeah. Just rumors. Who knows? Biden, I've heard. Biden will be there. I love the idea of comparing the bear and Breaking Bad. Like, what if the storyline becomes like they need to start cooking meth just to make ends meet? <laughs> they get uh, they get their meth consultant, Jesse Pinkman. Um, that would be amazing. <laughs> Carmi's cousin might be already. If they were like, guess what? He's been he's been cooking meth the whole time. I'd be like, sure, yeah, one yeah. guy. <laughs> yeah, it's not unlikely. Well, we're gonna be uh, doing bear a bear recap once it all comes out. So we'll we'll do more on that. But speaking of chefs getting canceled, um, there's a late breaking story in the Los Angeles Times uh, about a certain number of Hollywood restaurants that are being investigated for allegedly stiffing workers of the 5% service charge. Now, this involves the restaurants that are in and around the Thompson Hotel in Hollywood and the Citizen News Building. And these are restaurants like Mother Wolf of Chef Evan Funky, Katine of Chef Wes Avila, Barlice, Terrace. Basically what happened is some workers at the Terrace, which I think is the bar at the Thompson Hotel, alleged that the restaurant group that owns all of these restaurants was not distributing the 5% service fee to workers. And when they actually inquired about it, they were let go. So it's all being investigated. The LA city attorney is taking interest, uh, but the story just broke in the LA Times. And I suspect that uh, chefs Funky and Avila are not having such good days. Um, any initial reactions to the story? It's probably the worst day in Evan Funky's life since the last time he roasted on the pod, man. It's a tough day, tough day for our friend Evan. Uh, no, I mean, what, what this reminded me of was a conversation we had with Zeta a couple weeks ago, a couple episodes ago, I should say, right? Um, and and uh, what was it? That was um, wage theft, right, in that case, which essentially this, this sort of is in the same realm of as well. And then this sort of, and, and to be clear, and the, an article mentions this, like we don't know the level of awareness for Chef Funky or Villa for uh, oh, first of all, what was happening. The hospitality group that kind of owns the hotel and restaurants is the one that's, I think, particularly under fire for these practices. But of course, if you're a chef, of, if you're if you're someone like Evan Funky, who is building his own personal brand, building his level of fame, and of course, financial success um, on the on the strength of restaurants like Mother Wolf, you. <laughs> Like you said, franchise better be strong, man, and that he should be should should be aware. I'd almost be, I mean, like we'll figure figure out the level of uh, also like you know whether these restaurants were all participating and how how it went down. But no, it just speaks to the the broader issue and, and exactly the reason why I said um, the chef at Rosetta should have been disqualified from the accusations of wage theft, right? I think we can we can set a better example, just like with with abuse and behavior in chefs with. Well, wage and employment practices of the industry in terms of who we celebrate and who we rise up. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what's to come. It's big news. And I think, I mean, as you'd mentioned, um, I think in, 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 in sending me the article, like other restaurants getting named in the comments yeah. of, of the article as well as of having similar practices. Yeah, I think that's really one of the main takeaways here is, is this is just, I think, the tip of the iceberg on this. I think that the reason that the L.A. City attorney can actually put forward this investigation is because um, these restaurants are under a hotel group that's managed by a hotel. And right now, those are the only ones that can be looked into, according to L.A. City or or something like that. But the only reason they're not looking into like standalone restaurant restaurant groups is because there's like murkiness, legally speaking. So I think this is just Mm -hmm. the tip of iceberg in terms of these kinds of stories coming out to your point though i think that this is just a massive issue like it speaks to a much much bigger issue one of the things that really got me in the article was when the uh the worker who says he was let go was talking about how he was facing financial hardship because of this (laughs) um he said was making 1750 working at the restaurant and, you know, because I wasn't, because, you know, these uh, service charges weren't being distributed, I faced financial hardship. Realistically speaking, a 5% charge that's distributed amongst all the staff, 
how much is that actually going to add to his livelihood? And how much would that have actually saved him from financial hardship? I think the bigger issue here is I don't think our service homies are getting paid enough to begin with. No, that's right. That's right. I mean, look, and I don't know the answer to that, but certainly it's money that he, he earned and deserved. But to your very point, uh, there's a, a whole other conversation that would be interesting for us to have at some point around, you know, tipping, right? A 5% service charge is essentially a flat tip that's expected from, from all, uh, or, or a component, like a, a quote-unquote like tip component in, in, in the check. And and I think you're exactly right. I think there's an interesting conversation to have about um, the the industry as a whole, how workers can, in some, the, the, the folks who are paying workers fair living wages the most effectively as like leading examples, how they are successful doing so. Um, and, and what that practice looks like more broadly in Seattle, there are a couple, at least breweries who have, who have, you know, stop, accept, stop accepting tips. Um, and I think coffee shops as well, everything's baked in and then you pay the price upfront to ensure that everyone there has a, has a good living wage. Um, but, but yeah, it's, you're exactly right. And look, it's not just, we can even put aside the more the more moral issue that everyone deserves to have who works a full-time job at a restaurant in a tough industry deserves to have like a salary that allows them to like live a full and happy life there's also just the, the if you look at purely even purely from just like the, the the standpoint of wanting great food in our cities and a great food culture you know yeah <laughs> people need to work here I, there was an issue in seattle even before COVID, i think about like People who are waitstaff not even be able to live in the cities where they serve food, right? And and then and then restaurants having issues hiring people, right, to even serve and work there. And so, um, no, it's 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 a huge issue. It's a widespread one. I'm sure, like you said, we're going to see much much more uh, stories coming out, and we'll see what the what the out cost is. But you're exactly right. The, the the core issue here is how we pay the people who serve us food that we love. Yeah, it's it's also just like there was so much talk during the pandemic, which, by the way, like that's when the 5% service fee became standard practice. Like, I think it was like it was on certain restaurant groups radars before then, but it wasn't like ubiquitous. It became ubiquitous during the pandemic because there was all this like outcry about being good to our essential workers, including our servers, the people going in every day to make sure that we get food but that has just like kind of like completely evaporated i feel like like we are no longer as like we don't care as much which i think is human nature right but but it is something just to like think about it's like wow we 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 want we, we want and expect good service when we go out especially when we are as customers are paying a lot of money for meals like at mother wolf if I'm paying 30 bucks for a pasta, I want my waiter to like be able to tell me what the pasta is, how it's made. I want them to like be, like serve it to me, be nice to me. You know, if, if I make a joke, I want them to laugh. You know, when they come over to me. Christ. <laughs> when they come over to me and my plate is empty and I say it wasn't any good, I don't care how many times you've heard of that. I want you to laugh, you know? And oftentimes we are getting that service we're getting that service our servers go above and beyond they laugh at my shitty jokes and i think they deserve to be compensated for that um you know and that's all i'm saying that's my platform yeah we can call it the the luca emotional labor fee an additional 10 percent on every check that's built in uh, for, for, for uh waiters i've been laughing you're laughing your silly jokes yeah no you're exactly right man and look and even you say like, hey, we care during COVID. That's how the service fee got integrated and all that's like, fact is, is it, did we really care? If it's like, thanks for risking your life for me. Here's 5%, bro. That's like not, that's not the healthiest thing in the world. Uh, yeah. But yeah, no, uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully something interesting and actual happens um, out of, out of the city of LA as a result of uh, what the investigation. Look, I'm just saying, I'm glad Evan fucking finally getting his, you know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You call this a mile away, man. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No man who makes pasta like that is above board, you know? Um, no, look, I, uh, the, I I must stress that the article says that, you know, to their knowledge, um, they have no reason to believe that Chef Spunky and Chef Avila and the other chefs involved had any idea about this practice, that it really goes up to the restaurant group. Um, but there's just something to be said for if you put your name on something, you, you're 
you got to take some responsibility at some point. So, yeah, we'll see yeah. if that ends up. They may not have known. They may not have known, but they should. But they should, right? We didn't. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's fair to say. Yeah. Well, look, we're going to take a super quick break. Um, these were all sort of news appetizers. When we come back, it's the main course. Father Saul, our friend James Beard, is uh, back at it again. James Beard, the foundation and the awards uh, made the news this week for some controversy surrounding uh, their decision to no longer consider one of their uh, nominees for the award. Um, have you been following this at all, or do you need a recap? Give me a quick recap on this, because the James Beard world is an intricate and complicated games of Game of Thrones you like place and you know it better than me. Tell me about the palace intrigue here. It is actually this is actually really one that's like for the purists. Like you really need to know how the James Beard award even works in order to really care about this. And even then, I'm not sure you need to care. But a lot of people in the community are caring, so I think it merits discussion. Basically, what ended up what what has happened is that a chef, um, his name is Timothy Hansas. He's a chef that uh, operates in Birmingham, Alabama. He makes Greek food, which honestly, that in and of itself should disqualify you from winning a James Beard Award. But uh, he, he is no longer being considered for the award because there have been allegations that he was abusive to staff and customers as well. I think the allegations are like that he was yelling at people like he was like, you know, he would yell at customers and staff. I don't think there's any I don't think it goes beyond that. But that was the allegation. Mm -hmm. um, the the James Beard Award decided to no longer consider him. And as uh, as a consequence of this, um, one of the judges who sits on the, the committee that decides who the nominees are decided to resign. Because he's the judge that oversees that region. And basically, he said he accused the foundation of lacking transparency in how they made this decision and in how they communicated it with him as the person who oversees that region. So basically, he got a call from like a reporter about this whole situation and he was caught flat footed. He, you know, I think he felt like an idiot. He was probably his pride was a little hurt too. And he was like, I don't want to be a part of this mess anymore. I'm stepping down. It didn't stop there, though, because once news broke of this, two other chefs who operate in similar regions, I think they actually op operate somewhere like in Mississippi or something like that, one of the one of the states nearby. One of them is called uh, John Currents. The other one is called Bishwish Bot. And John Currents, like, posted a picture of his the award that he received smashed. Like, he destroyed it. <laughs> Super dramatic. He destroyed the in protest. He accused he accused the foundation of bending to quote unquote wokeness, um, and then basically like cited other corruption that the foundation has had over the years. Um, the the other chef, Bishwish Bot, did something similar. I think he also like showed an image of like his award on the wall being taken down, um, and he also levied some accusations at the at the foundation um for how they how they go about their business now i'm gonna go through the accusations right and i will go one by one i think some have merit and i think some are just inane do you have any initial reactions though um, yeah i'll give a couple of quick quick initial takes one i think good on james beard for doing exactly what we just talked about right i by by being an award entity you should have your eye out for practices that we wouldn't want to celebrate and and have that in consideration for the awards now like the transparency issue though is is fair and real and then like seems a little prideful for a guy to resign over you know what seems like a relatively small deal of not being communicated about a decision like this but you know whatever fair uh of course my guy john currents is 100 percent right james beard woke mind virus fuck all this <laughs> we can't take hit politics out of my food Stay in the kitchen. <laughs> no, um, no, no, that's like really stupid. <laughs> I mean, well, we can go through the rest of the accusation stuff, but like the overall reaction here, the idea of like smashing your awards feels very like trying to catch on to the, like trying to get, get in on the culture, like broader culture wars and like, uh, you know, try to like pretend like 
wokeness is the reason why like uh you you disqualify a chef for being abusive which by the way i should also say they they the only james beard made like made a decision to disqualify the chef and it sounds like and i would assume not knowing much that he his behavior was really out of line but um i also would say like you know patrons can be shitty right Uh, there's if this is a scenario where like he was like standing up for his staff to patrons or something like that or or being rude then it would be a different scenario it doesn't sound like that's the case um yeah yeah overall like yeah go ahead I was going to say, look, I, I think that this is a very interesting, like, case study in how far the pendulum has swung in the culture wars. Because I want to I wanna take you back to the, to the year of our Lord, 2020. And in 2020, there was a little thing called the Black Lives Matter movement, which presented a huge issue for the James Beard Foundation. So they... They, that year, um, in the wake of a lot of, so, so they have a bit of a history of controversy to begin with. I think, I forget exactly when, but like, I, I want to say in the nineties or the James Beard does or something. James Beard does not. Yeah. 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 To be clear. James Beard. James Beard has he, yeah, yeah. James. Yeah, yeah. Early aughts, nineties or something like that. I have to fact check that, but there was like some really bad, like embezzlement stuff that went down. Right. Mm-hmm. So like. They've had like huge issues in terms of transparency and trust and whatnot for a while. But since then, they had worked on rehabilitating their image. They had, you know, they had rebranded. They'd also changed leadership uh, more substantively. And I feel like they had finally like course corrected to being like respected in the industry again, whatnot. Like they were, they were on their way up. However, as society started looking at itself again in 2020, both in the wake of like Me Too and in the wake of the the George Floyd uh, moment, uh, the, the George Floyd murder that happened, um, basically the James Beard Foundation started getting called out for gatekeeping in the industry for basically just having a lot of white chefs and a lot of white male chefs that were like uh, basically constantly winning the awards. And because of the way that the awards were structured, it was basically like once you won an award, you then became a judge for life. So it created the system where like the judges were just all these like previous white men who had who had won awards in the past and they made up like a pretty large percentage of the judges. Um, so they were getting called out for that, right? They were getting called out for how they were being awarded. Um, in 2020, there was also a little bit of a scandal because they decided not to host the awards. And initially it was unclear why. But it was later leaked that they did it because some of the people that were nominated were getting horrific accusations of like me too and abuse basically. And instead of like going out and like saying they like just decided we're not going to have the awards at all. Right. And they were criticized, you know, for basically like, you know, uh, acting kind of cowardly. Right. Um, Other accusations that are levied against them oftentimes have to do with gatekeeping. And that's actually where uh, Chef John Kearns comes in. He was talking about something that the James Beard uh, Foundation used to do was um, they used to allow chefs to come cook at the James Beard house, which is like, it was seen as like this big rite of passage for chefs. You can come to the James Beard house, you cook a meal, um, and it's like this great big honor to do it. The problem is when chefs get invited to cook at the James Beard house, they do so at immense personal cost it they have to do it all out of pocket of their own pocket oftentimes Mm. these are not like the chefs have absolutely made it they're the chefs who are kind of like on the cusp and are looking for something to really cement them so it was a big it was seen as like a big barrier right if you want to cook in the house you can but it's paid for play really um since then the foundation has done stuff to like change that a little bit um, so, you know, maybe John Kearns isn't aware of that, but I think the, 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 the accusation he makes that has a ton of merit is that the foundation creates and the awards create some really fucked up incentives when it comes to media awards. Now, the James Beard award, the foundation gives out media awards, right? Best, uh, best books, 
best articles. One day they'll award us with best podcast, right? Um, but his <laughs> accusation is that it it disincentivizes media from covering them and their bad behavior for fear of eventually not winning the award. And that to me was like, damn, this guy thought about it. Like that's actually, it has nothing to do with the current situation, but it's a good point and something that merits discussion. Hmm. Interesting. I, 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 I think I agree with that last, uh, that last piece. There certainly does seem to be a, um, some kind of conflict of interest there. Of course, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think, I think a reporter may. I look. I, I'm not a journalist. I shouldn't be too out of turn here. Like a reporter would rather take like a big, uh, you know, industry busting story over like maybe one day I'll win a food award. But maybe I'm wrong. Like he, the, 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 at the very least, the incentive there is back. He's not wrong about that. And to clarify, was John Kearns suggesting that? Uh, he was criticizing the practice of cooking at the house. He was saying that this was an unfair thing for James Beard to have done in the past. I think basically he was saying like, oh, this is this lack of transparency with how Chef Timothy Hansus yeah. was treated is emblematic of how they operate in general. For example, the yeah. shady like they make their chefs pay to play to cook at the James Beard house. Uh, they, you know, have this like, fucked up incentive system with the media it's just them doing what they do basically got it yeah and look that 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 all makes sense to me i'm not sure how wokeness fits into all this but the but the transparency and the skewed incentives and uh pieces all all would track to me including in in the treatment of timothy hansis where it sounds like he, he might rightfully been disqualified from the reward maybe but i i would also think there's an expectation that the reasoning behind it and, and the clarity to the very people that they have, you know, participating in the award selection are aware of that, right? Um, so, so I mean, look, that doesn't that doesn't seem off base to me. The only thing, the only thing that I'm, I'm kind of chuckling at is this, like, is the use of the term woke, but uh, you know, that's everywhere now. That's that, that's all fine. The actual accusations or allegations um, seem like things that James Beard should address in some way. Do you know what? I think that the John Kearns thing is really interesting because he says they're bending to wokeness and then he makes some really woke critiques. <laughs> yeah, fair point. Fair point. We think the issue here is maybe just John Kearns doesn't know what woke means. That, that could be that the crux of this. Yeah. Yeah. We can, we can, by the way, I don't think woke means any of this shit, but. <laughs> But like in, in, in real terms, but uh, hey, it's out. There. Why not? It's it's a good yeah. it's a good book term. It's a good it's good for SEO. Yeah, I think the last the, the last point I want to bring up that was actually a critique by uh, Chef Fishwitch Bot. Um, he made it one critique, which I think was like totally unfair. Which was basically like uh, the change that the James Beard Foundation made to the uh, to the voting body. Um, he was like. It's not fair to remove previous winners. Um, that's how I won my award. Are you saying I don't deserve my award? It's like, no, bro, we're not saying that. Just chill out. We're just saying, like, we need more diversity in, in judges. That's it, bro. Like, that one was just like, take your head out of your ass a little bit. But the one that I think actually he had a point with was he was saying that the James Beard Foundation, this is really funny, actually expects their judges to go out and pay for their own food like these judges <laughs> these judges are tasked with like going to like all these like very expensive restaurants right and they these are chefs and journalists they're not like like wealthy business people or like you know like people like people like you and me who are being bankrolled by like big food right um they are <laughs> little like they're they're, they're small business owners who are being asked to participate in this thing that they think is good of giving the James Beard Award, and then they're being asked to go out to these restaurants and pay for it out of their own pocket. I think that's a really <laughs> bad look for the foundation person. I'm not sure, again, what the hell it has to do with this it, with this instance, but that is an interesting one that I think we should we should look into. Yeah, it seems like good practice for James Beard to... Um... 
uh, compensate its judges for all the money they're spending on the food they're eating. That seems that seems fair. I also do think it's funny. It's funny that he tacked on that he like snowballed with this particular thing, being like, "Also pay my meals." <laughs> like John Curran's bringing these like well thought out and historical like corruption allegations, and and Bishy being like, "I don't want to pay either." By the way, also love how he just stood an image of the uh, of the war being taken down instead of bashing it because. I'm betting oh. it's going right back up on the <laughs> Yeah, he's putting that chair right back up, right back up there. Yeah. I do think, though, that I'll... I remember we had a whole conversation on do these awards matter? And yeah. after I was reading this and thinking about this, um, it, it gave me another reason why I think these awards matter. And I think it does it mm. does matter for these chefs' career. And I think we we didn't really think about that in the past as fully what i mean by that is not just as an accolade i think it matters when you're like trying to attract investors for a new project or something like that the same way that like getting a master's in like your your, your profession or something if you're a james beard award winning chef like yeah you're gonna have an easier time getting investors for a new project or if you're if your restaurant is struggling finding investors to like help you get through tough times so you know, I think we were maybe a little harsh on it last time, but I think that this is extremely humble and commendable of me to acknowledge that we were wrong. <laughs> Great transparency, bro. We're exact. We're the exact opposite of James Beard. No, I, I mean, I thought that was kind of part and parcel. Like, I, I think I thought that was a, sort of implied that yes, one of the things you get with the award is the professional, you know, uh, advantages that come with it, and therefore it's even more important for the awards to be um, considered fairly and as as broadly as possible, and you know, avoid things like like James Beard's historical gatekeeping, right? I also think this this reminds me again of the conversation we had. We were like, hey, what if there was some award that combined the perspective of eaters as well as restaurateurs and people in the industry as well as critics and journalists, right? Which balances out, I would think, a bit kind of what the what what uh, the most deserving looks like um, in a particular ge- like geography. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I'm like look, the awards are the awards define the industry, right? You have a great chance of getting on a top chef if you're a james beard award nominee or winner which is a pretty good segue to our final uh, final topic here but i i i appreciate the emphasis at the very least on transparency here of process of of like i feel like every year and maybe i just missed this but when the james beard award announces it's it's semi-finalist or at the very least it's covered by eater i would love for eater to break down like at the very top exactly how these semi-finalist nominees and winners are chosen so we yeah. have an understanding of where these choices, of where these uh, uh, winners came from, because there is such a, um, you know, strong momentum and association down with what these restaurateurs will go on with uh, to do for the rest of their careers. And they get into it a little bit in this article in terms of the process. So we'll link it in the in the uh, in the show notes so that listeners you can you can go and check that out. But um, yeah, I think that there's definitely like there is a merit to thinking about who votes. And I think that for the James Beard, it's mostly chefs, past winners and media also. Um, but yeah, I think, I think we need some regular people, people awards, bro. And I think that that's, uh, we'll do that on another episode. We're going to come up with the perfect fuel award. The regular awards. <laughs> the regular. <laughs> you're a regular chef, bro. Congratulations. You're a regular cook. <laughs> The regular cook, the regular beard award. Um, well, the beard, the the awards will get announced in the next couple of weeks, and we'll do a bit on them when they come out. Um, and depending on how controversial they are, you know, we only like to cover controversy. Well, speaking of controversy, uh, that's a perfect segue to our final section, Top Chef recap. We'll be right back. And now for the part of the podcast I've been dreading the most, it's time for a recap of where things stand on Top Chef, and critically our fantasy top chef. Father Saul, you want to do the honors of how things are going? Oh, I would love to. As of today, the score of top chef fantasy on the LA food podcast is team Luca, 86 points. Team Saul, 200 points. (laughs) It's been been brutal for you, man. It's been just nonstop beat down and it's too funny it's honestly almost comedic the like length to which the show goes to make me suffer i i am constantly like 
given hope that one of my chefs is going to do well that week. And then it's just stripped from me bizarrely at the last moment, usually by someone who comes out of nowhere, like a Mar. Um, are there any scenarios? Well, first of all, tell us what happened on the most recent episodes. Because there were some pretty dope episodes. Yeah, they were. They were interesting. So we had, first of all, two weeks ago, Restaurant Wars. But it wasn't, I'm going to do Restaurant Wars asterisk. Because it was a semi Restaurant Wars. And what's funny is, what they did is, they took the onus of designing a restaurant space, training front of staff, taking in, like, fully training front of staff, and having to, like, you know, fully design the process of taking in um, uh, diners. To really basically just do a menu, cook it, and you can use uh, existing restaurant spaces, existing professional front of staff, front of house staff that will run everything. And to me, you know, actually, my girlfriend and I recently went back and watched all of Top Chef Kentucky. In Top Chef Kentucky, they have actually an early restaurant wars with three different teams. And it made me really miss the chaos that a typical restaurant wars has in it. So it was restaurant wars. Buddha uh, led one team, Victor, quote unquote, led the other. <laughs> and uh, Buddha, Buddha's, Buddha's uh, team, which he had definitely brainstormed the concept for like eight months ago, eight months before shooting, uh, came out with a solid victory. Uh, Buddha was the winner. That's why he's number one overall pick. Um, so it's all national wars. We can go back and talk a little bit about what we liked and didn't like. And then most recently, it was something that we had asked for the last time we talked about Top Chef which is bringing in some of the immigrant and particularly South Asian cuisines of London. And they did a, they eat, um, ate at an Indian restaurant and then each had uh, had to make a stali, like essentially a, a five, four to five course, uh, single single plate of food with four, four so rather it's a single plate of food with four or five different dishes on it and rice or, or um, roti. And uh, really, really compelling, I thought, challenge, really fun to watch. And, and well-designed in that the, the challenge for the chefs was to hit different flavor profiles. And, you know, some shocking, a shockingly good performance there from Lamar, who did have an advantage from the quick fire, but not someone who, I mean, he's someone who claimed he'd never cooked Indian and absolutely crushed it. So, um, no, it was, it's been a really good couple of weeks. We can dive into the episode in more de- episodes in more detail, uh, but it continues, uh, I think, a really strong season of concept and execution and high-quality cooking as well. I think the run in here is going to be super compelling and super competitive of the remaining shows. Are there any scenarios in which I can still win? Yeah, yeah. Here's what it looks like. So basically, if Buddha goes full on Chef Slowick in the menu and kills the rest of my contestants, you can win. No, I I, I did the math. I'm pretty sure you're mathematically eliminated, my guy. I don't think there's yeah. any. I tried. I tried to play it out. I think. I think you're a. Uh, Making a reservation of expertise sometime in your near future. <laughs> uh, damn. All right. Well, um, yeah, no, I, I think I I have regrets in my life, but this is up there. This is up there. I think that um I approached the draft all wrong. And I, I, I will I will own that. I think that I I let my emotions get the best of me. I refused to pick chefs <laughs> that I I I, I just had like dislikes for you know um totally like totally frankly stereotypical dislikes as well i own that and this is why you should never stereotype folks um <laughs> also i do i stand by my notion that like buddha is one of the most hateable characters on television wow wow that's mean yeah it's mean it's mean but i'm all for emotion <laughs> emotional uh, <laughs> sore loser and i own that look i yeah it's yeah. not like hateable he's not hateable on like a personal level although actually i take that back he is he he the from whole shit he does of like every time a chef comes on a famous chef comes on and he's like oh my god oh my god i can't believe i get to cook for this person oh my god it's such an honor it's so fake <laughs> bro give it give no it it's up. not yeah no, I no no. Here, here's the thing: is this so? Buddha has been dominant generally in Top Chef, though. Again, he's had some stumbles this season, including this last episode where it looked like he might go home. He really fucked some stuff up, including forgetting to serve uh, Adma his his chicken curry dish. I think um, chicken curry, I should say. But he, at the end of the day, he's just a nerd. He's just a Top Chef nerd. He's just like you and me, man. When I listened to Buddha on uh, on the Packer Knife podcast, he joined. 
And man, he is so meticulous, competitive, but also such a fan of the show. And I think actually does like take shot Top Chef so seriously. Honestly, here's what I would say. That we we earlier in our podcast lives on the LA Food Pod designed what we thought was the perfect game show, right? The perfect food competition show. I would be so honored if there were contestants like Buddha on that show who had like broken down the game, who had tried so hard and nerded out and taken, you know, Buddha has watched every single episode of Top Chef ever and taken notes on who won and who lost and why. That's baller, man. That's so cool. It's adorable. No, No, it's not. And here's (laughs) what. What Buddha is doing is he is making the show He's no longer making the show Top Chef. He's making the show uh, Top Chef Fan. Top Top Chef Student. <laughs> it, it's not a show of who is the best chef in these situations. It's the show that's, that's it's, it's the chef that's like studied these very specific scenarios the best. I don't think that actually means he's the best chef there. I think it just means he's, he's like the biggest teacher's pet. He's the Mason Mount of Top Chef. No, 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 no. He's the Billy Bean of Top Chef, man. This is Top Chef Moneyball. He, I would use Daryl Morey as an example, but I kind of hate him right now. He's the guy. This is a, and he, you're right. He is the best at Top Chef. That it's, it's a fair point that he may not actually, like in every environment, be the very best chef on, like, amongst competition, though. I mean, look, Buddha fucking kills it in the real world, too. Let's, not, let's make no mistake about it. But he is, he is the best at Top Chef. And look, it's a game. It's a competition. And he's moneyballing the shit out of it. And I love to see it. I love to see it. Now, of course, what's almost interesting then to watch like the the Buddhas of the world versus the Sarahs and the Amars, who are like the I would call it the 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 artisans of Top Chef, right? The ones just like coming up with Sean the Fly, cooking Indian food for the first time, right? Like really trying to go with the flow of the competition rather than having it planned out. Real right versus left brain vibes a little bit here. And uh I like watching it play out, but yeah, you're wrong about Buddha. You're you're sad that you've been dominated so thoroughly here. I mean, what? I, we 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 don't even have to worry about this. Now, now, look, here's what I will say: you do have a chance for bragging rights, still. Even if you yeah. lose Top Chef Fantasy, Sarah and yeah. Tom could come out on top here. Yeah, I think if that happens, I will claim to be the winner, and I will start a petition to. <laughs> No longer owe you vespertine, but I, <laughs> I think that that is my only hope. That is the only hope is that I have the pride of having one of my contestants somehow win. Um, I don't have high hopes for it, um, but it could happen. So on that note, who's your who do you predict to win this? Do you just are you just interested in Brett to win? Hey, I don't. You know, last time I said. Buddha was gonna be my favorite till proven otherwise. I I don't. He just looks a little shaky sometimes this season. I mean, a great restaurant wars performance followed up by a real dud, a real clunker, uh, most recent, and a very unBuddha like way of, of executing on Top Chef and forgetting to serve a dish. Um, I think I will go Ali as my top choice, and that's because my girlfriend Emily told me that. Pod Ali is the only person Padma follows on Instagram from the season. <laughs> we're doing we're doing some deep dive social media here, the media theorizing here that Ali's on top. And by the way, he is the top point getter in fantasy for the whole season, really consistently near the top of every single episode, including this one. I think I think his performance front to back has been so strong that I think he has what it takes to see it all the way through. Well, speaking of front to back. Padma may just be following him because front to back, <laughs> he's the most handsome contestant to ever be on top. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. And also, I mean, I've not been on Oli's Insta, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's just like a series of thirst traps. Fucking <laughs> the guy, the guy's in good shape. Guy's got great eyebrows, tall, dark, and handsome. No, I mean, I, I think, I think Oli, and then I think, look, I, I, it would be, it'd be a bit of a shot, but Amar really has performed consistently high. He really has. He's come together in these last couple of weeks, and he is, like, actually executing at a super high level. He doesn't really make mistakes. I would Nicholas Holt myself if Amar <laughs> went to the game. <laughs> that is unforgivable. Like, he is... Why? First of all, he is just... 
he's there by accident. He's doing this. He like his whole thing is like, I I can't believe I'm even here. Ah, I've never made Indian food. Okay, let me try to make Indian. <laughs> he's just giving like you know like what's that movie like Mr. Whatever goes to Washington, you know, or like fish out of water. And it's, it's so annoying uh, because it, it is an underdog story and you should want him to win in some ways, but I just find it so great. Probably just because I didn't pick him, you know? Um, I think that could be, I think this could be a personal problem. I'm not going to lie. He's got like the best personality. He's got bad hair. I'll give him that. But, but I will say to your point, Sometimes he's so like dopey about it that I wonder if he's like it's an sharking a little bit. Yeah, yeah. What if he's like rope doping a little bit? Being yeah. like, oh me, I'm like I, I have a crush on Oli. How cute is that? Like, what's Indian food? I've never had this spice, and then just fucking crushes it. Right? You know what he's doing? That would be that would be a true twist is if we saw him and he's actually the Billy Bean, like has all the books and stuff and has been doubled. <laughs> That'd be an amazing that'd be an amazing twist. Uh, mate, also he'd be really like he should deserve an Oscar for how how dumb he plays because he plays it extremely well. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, fine. Uh, final question on this is where do you think this ranks in in terms of the pantheon of seasons of Top Gun? Yeah. You know, it's up there, and I've recently been, like, as I mentioned, we I recently rewatched uh, Season 16, Kentucky. I'm re- Right now, literally, as soon as we're off, you're going to be watching some Season 13, California, where Amar made his first appearance, I believe, on the show. I I think, what Top Chef in the last five, ten years has been, like, consistently really, really strong, I think. Um, and I, didn't, I feel like World All-Stars thus far couldn't be top five. I'll say of the season and possibly higher. I'll, I'll say five only just because it's not complete yet. And, you know, sometimes they're disappointing endings such as Kentucky, where I believe Sarah should have won the season. Uh, so we'll see where it lands in that way. But I mean, Portland is is still my number one favorite. Um, I think Kentucky's really strong. Ellie all-star is general favorite as well. Um, first season of all-star is really great. Um, I, I, I think it's going to end up being like probably top three. I think it's so interesting to have the chefs from the different countries come in, from the different competitions. I think it's created a really cool environment and dynamic between them. I think the level of cooking has been high. And crucially, I think the production and the design of the competitions with, you know, ironically, a little bit of a hiccup around restaurant wars, in my opinion, has just been super, super cool. I I would agree with that. I think it's easily up there, like top five or something like that. I do think, like, there are some seasons that I remember more fondly, like, for example... I forget which one it was, but it was, I think it was an All-Stars with Brian Voltaggio and I want to say Chef Melissa in the final. Um, that was, that was LA All-Stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was epic season. I just remember the heart of it until you, like, I just remember, like, yeah, like, I just remember the narrative around Melissa being very strong and whatnot. And um, it was just, uh, that one really tugged at the heartstrings. Although I will say, I think I am conditioned to dislike this season because of the emotional toll it's taken on me to be such a humongous loser. It's this downside of fantasy top chef. I think it does really call your experience as a whole more than, more than I'm really giving credence for because I'm winning by so much that I'm just loving life. I want to throw, I want to shout out really quickly. Top chef, uh, boss. can't remember what season number it is exactly now. A, sh- a really, really good one. Um, they, they still had a couple of chefs here and there that were like, kind of like, you know, it's still corny reality sh- reality show like drama, but the overall quality and I think the heart of that season took me by surprise as well. So I like Boston, LA All Stars, Portland, and then I think this one's right up there in those top four. Um, yeah, I think, you, I think you, it's consider, you gotta consider the season where who was it? Kristen came back from like Last Chance Kitchen at the end and won. That's Seattle, man. Top Chef Seattle. I, 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 I it's, it's fair to that the Kristen arc made that one really strong, but that was still early enough. I think it was season eight. I'm like not giving two. I'm like maybe underweighting the first eight or nine seasons of the show a little bit because I feel like the like when you go back and watch like the diversity of the chefs is pretty like non-existent. A lot of white dudes, a lot of very similar kinds of cooking. It really hadn't. I think. It was building its prestige and then bringing in more and more executive chefs and, and you know folks with like high levels of talent. But certainly in terms of a narrative, our first season, Top Chef Seattle was a was a compelling. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, last question before I let you go is what are you going to ask Tom and Gail if we're able to see them this weekend at WeedsCon? Weeds, oh my God. What a question. Uh, I, I, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, I think the thing, if, if, if we're being serious and, and talking top chef, I, I would want to know. And if I could get like, you know, Tom and Gail three drinks deep, right? I, I'd want to know their favorite and least favorite, favorite and least favorite winner. Not contestants, there's too many of those, but favorite and least favorite winners. The winners are proudest and like like the most, frankly, and, and that they're still like have a relationship with versus those where they were like, kind of fucked that up. Shit, I might even ask them like, hey, I mean, shouldn't Shota have won season 19? Shouldn't Sarah have won season 16? Could, could yeah. poke and prod here, see if they have any regrets, biggest regrets on choices they've made. I like that. I think that's a good question. I think mine would be more personal to like how Tom keeps his head so shiny or something like that. But um, <laughs> how does how does Tom choose the hat he's wearing that week? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do he just like make being bald look that sexy? Um, you know. But I think like between your questions and my questions, um, I think we can really get on their good side. You know, we get we get a good balance there. Yeah, we get a good balance. Well, dude, I'll see you in LA for the. Uh, I'll see you on Thursday for the uh, bar bar party, and then it's EatsCon. Listeners, if you if you see us at EatsCon, please come say hi. Um, we will. We're not too. We're not too famous yet, you know. So like, uh, chances are we'll still like be nice and and down to earth. So uh, please come by and say hi. Right. Speak for yourself. Speak for yourself. I'll have security on site. You'll have to go through them first. <laughs> yep. All right, buddy. Have a safe flight. I'll see you in LA. See you soon, bud. Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Food Podcast. Thanks to Father Saul, as always. And seriously, if you're at EatsCon this weekend, please stop by and say hi. We'd love nothing more. If you did like what you heard today, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a rating, a review, subscribe if you should be so inclined. And if you're looking for me, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at the LA Countdown. That's T-H-E-L-A-C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N.